So we pick up today on a series, Walking as Jesus Did. The strap line comes from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, which says very simply, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It's a literal translation. Many of ours today would say, must live as Jesus did. And I can tell you that there are whole theologies that have been written why, as to why you can ignore that verse. They would never admit that that's why they've written those theologies, but they want to tell you that at a hundred different levels, it's completely impossible. And uh, so while it's a nice sentiment, uh, you don't really need to worry about it. I want to tell you that you really need to worry about it. Because a little bit later... In chapter 4, it says, this is how you can set your heart at peace on the day of judgment. Anyone attentive yet? In this world, in this world, we were like him. So it's not just one day we'll become like Jesus or whatever. How do I set my heart at peace on the day of judgment? In this world, I've, I've become like Jesus. So, uh, yeah, that's a pretty intense thing. But let me quickly comment on the fasting thing and the prayer thing, because I, I really want to urge you if, you, if you make it once in the week, then do it. If you can do more than that, that's great. Um, and then also setting aside time. What does fasting do? Fasting, and I know we've given ourselves latitude, and rightly so, um, but many of us almost then go, okay, so I, I, just, I probably have to just delete that app for a week, and then I'm sort of like done. No, 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 no. Fasting is about intensifying the effect of all other spiritual disciplines, especially when you're fasting food. You will find that your worship is at a different level. It intensifies its effect. Your prayer is at a different level. Reading scripture is at a different level. Talking to people about Jesus is at a different level. So fasting has the effect of focus. Fasting has the effect of intensifying whatever else you're doing in God. And we fast for God. So often, you know, we read Scripture. There are many triggers for fasting. Like you can hear bad news. You can hear good news. You can, you can feel called into ministry. People fasted before they set out in ministry. Jesus did that. Uh, you can have a burden. You can hear about your country that's in a mess like Nehemiah, and you can begin to fast. There are many triggers for fasting, but there's only one reason for fasting. That's God himself. You want him. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. And um, just remember this. Fasting, though, is a means of grace. You're not earning anything from God. You don't merit anything. It's a God-given way of intensifying the other aspects of our spiritual quest. Um, and it's certainly not a hunger strike to get God to do your way. You know, I'll threaten self-harm if God doesn't show up and do whatever. No, no, no. It's just, there's nothing transactional about it. It's a beautiful gift. And, and what are we doing? Dallas Willard explains it like this. God has given us stuff that we can choose to do with our bodies that releases things that our spirit can do uh, only when we give our bodies to doing that. And so you've got to give your body to pray. You can't pray without consciously choosing some aspect of your human existence to engage in. But when you do that, God does what he alone can do. 
you give yourself to do something you can do, you're opening yourself up to something God alone can do. So, back to our series. I'm looking forward to prayer at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Um, so, those are some of the things I was just mentioning, if you want to uh, have a look at that. We're going to start in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is at what is known as the Last Supper. In the Gospel of John, we have seen how uh, John, in a sense, starts fully loaded with Jesus appearing in his divine nature. We need to realize that for the disciples, that was a retrospective reality that John came to understand. He was able to look back at the life of Jesus and see that Jesus is the Word of God who was in the beginning before anything else, and He was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. The Word became flesh, lived among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the framing, and he recognizes that, but you must understand, they didn't know that up front. All they encountered was a man who said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And then incredible stuff began to happen around the man they followed. And that stuff was connected to incredible things he said. And over time, they're they wrestling with everything he's unpacking for them. And within 24 hours of speaking these words, he would be crucified on a Roman cross. And he's preparing them. So he's telling them some of this stuff. And, and, and he's told them that his suffering will come. And so they worried. So he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Some of your translations say, you believe in God. Well, if you do, then believe in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? It sounds like using Google Maps sometimes. You know. Drop the pin, then I can find you. You need to know that not all places in Zambia are listed on Google Maps. <laughs> Any case, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? What an interesting answer. Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus is explaining something really important here. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We use that in our worship. God is always glorified when the Son is glorified. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now this passage is just chock-a-block with truth, revelation, and mind-blowing stuff. And I certainly can't do the details justice in one morning. Some preachers can, I'm not one of them. But I want to highlight the discipling headlines that are part of this passage. Because this passage holds some very interesting realities about the person of Jesus. It's going to help us answer, how do we work out the aspects of what are unique to Jesus and what is transferable? One of the first things that whacks you between the eyes is that we are supposed to do what Jesus did. Whoever believes in me, those are the people who put their faith in Jesus. Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts me, whoever's obeyed verse 1 in this passage, by the end of the passage is going to be doing the works I have been doing, and you do it by learning to activate stuff in his name. That's what the next few verses show. So in his name, we put our faith into action by doing the stuff Jesus did. So faith reproduces the life and ministry of Jesus. You see, the ministry of Jesus is meant to continue through us who have come to believe that he is absolutely unique. I mean, he's absolutely emphatic that he's unique. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. He's completely and utterly unique, and yet his ministry continues only through those who believe he's unique. And his ministry continues through those who believe he's unique. Scratch your head a while. Just scratch the head of the person next to you. How on earth... Do you have someone so unique? There's a powerful paradox, and you've got to see this. The identity of Jesus as the man who is God and God who is man. His identity is unique, and his ministry is transferable. Never mix those up. You're going to get into a whole heap of trouble... If you start mixing those up, his identity is unique, but it goes even a little further. There's actually three issues. Now, I've separated into two, but I'm going to open up another one. We're going to add a third. You see, there's three issues. There's his unique identity as true God who is fully human. Okay, you got that? It's taken theologians 2,000 years not to get it. But we just have to say, and, and listen, 
you know, we've treated the Trinity a little bit like a doctrine that you have to pare it off. You don't need to understand it as long as you never contradict it. You must be a Christian. We've got to find the way to unlock the truth inside of this Trinitarian reality. Don't mess these up. Don't mix these up. The con- and we're going to spend a couple of weeks unpacking this. Now, let me just say this. I know I'm, I'm covering quite a bit. And so already on the PBC website is a thing. If you click on it, there's a link into Google Docs. And there are daily readings. So you can read. To, you can start today if you like. The daily readings and some prayers. Hillary has helped me draft for the end. And uh, so you've got a daily reading looking at this passages. Uh, at these passages, and there's five readings for this week, and you'll have time to reflect at a much deeper level on the content that I'm covering now. And I want to urge you, um, we're probably going to do about eight weeks, press pause a little bit so we can all breathe, and then we're going to pick up another eight weeks. If you want to get your head around this, you really need to go to those readings. Um, And uh, you'll see a scripture, and interacting with that scripture is the content of these sermons. The second thing that is completely unique about Jesus is his work of atonement, his redemption, in which, which very importantly, Jesus accomplished in his humanity. The Son of Man came, the Son of Adam, literally, came to seek and save that which is lost. The work of rescuing the world was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But nevertheless, that Messiah, that Christ, had to be human. His work of atonement, and, and, and I know that we've got to hold this together, and it's always a little complicated. It's not that Jesus ever stopped being God, even on the cross. And that's what that God was in Christ. But you need to understand that it had to be done, and we're going to look at this on week three. By an authentic, complete, full human. And the last thing is his transferable ministry as one again who is fully human, in submission to God, and filled with and empowered by the Spirit. And so he says, It is the Father in me doing his work. When you see works, and he's talking about the miracles. You need to know that that is the Father living in me. And he means by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon him. So Jesus does it because the Father, by the Spirit, is fully alive in him. His ministry is not relying upon his divine identity, although his divine identity is never in question. But you cannot mix these up. You see... Without a clear understanding of the third question, we miss Jesus' discipleship strategy. We look at his life and we say his life was so unique, not his identity, not his atonement, but the stuff he did from Sunday to Sunday or Sabbath to Sabbath. The ordinary stuff of his life, which was friggin' extraordinary, is not in my category. And so Jesus becomes problematically seen as a hero and not a model. He's a savior, but not an example. Because we've messed this up. We've mixed him up, and we think that his life and ministry are unique instead of transferable. 
His identity is unique. His atonement is unique. But his ministry is meant to be completely transferable because it's done by the power of the Spirit out of relationship with the Father living in me. That's the great thing. When you get this, these categories right, this understanding, every single page of the Gospels comes alive with their actual application. You see, what we tend to do is we have to spiritualize. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus can heal your broken heart. You know, we embrace the outcast. Instead of actually loving poor, lost people, we start talking about, you know, people who are clearly not poor as if they need our compassion in ways... And, it's not that rich people don't need our compassion. It's just that we completely spiritualize it and we ignore the obvious poor person who needs our compassion. And so we give to people, or in the language of Jesus, we invite people to our home for meals who are able to return the invitation. <laughs> Instead of inviting people who have no hope of returning the invitation to a meal. Why? Because we spiritualize it. We spiritualize driving out demons. These dark beings that want to take us down and we spiritualize it. And we spiritualize the miracles. Miracles over creation, whatever else. We spiritualize sharing possessions. We spiritualize declaring the gospel as good news. Instead of seeing that God actually wants to change the stuff of earth with the power of heaven. What God wants us to do when we look at the life of Jesus is do it. <laughs> so you can use the Nike line if you like. The life of Jesus, both spoken and modeled, his words and his works, becomes the basis, the curriculum of all discipleship. And so when a disciple is fully trained, Luke 6, he will be like his master. She will be like her master. Secondly, then we need to just dig a bit more into this Trinitarian stuff. Jesus did not only seem to be human. You know, he turns to Philip, don't you know me? Have you not been on a journey of discovery? I mean, you know I get tired. You know I'm getting older. You, you, you know I, I get hungry. You know I get thirsty. You know I'm subject to time. You, you, you know that when I'm in Jerusalem, I am not in Bethlehem. I am subject to space. I've even told you that there's things I don't know. And sometimes in ministry, Jesus has to ask, who touched me? <laughs> this Jesus they had come to know was thoroughly human, and yet in his humanity was still able to fully reveal the Father. Now, one of the first errors that, or heresies that, that came into the early church was called doceticism. Other people pronounce it different ways. But it's from the Greek word dokio, which means to appear to be, to seem as though. And people began to cheat, uh, teach that Jesus was so awesome, so amazing, that there's actually no way. And this was one of the earliest, earliest heresies that, that came. Interesting, it wasn't what we have today, that the miracles of Jesus' life are obviously so amazing they're not true. And so we can dismiss them, and we need to find the, the deeper hidden meanings of these allegories, because clearly they can't happen. Um, we need to find the, the hidden meaning behind this mythology 
so that we can have something to talk about and preach about and something to believe in. That's the modern way of approaching us. Interesting, during that time, nobody for about 70 years suggested that the miracles of Jesus' life were myth because there were too many eyewitnesses. Even his opponents were walking around demanding to know, how did you do that? By what authority did you do that? They couldn't refute he was doing the stuff. And so one of the earliest mistakes that was made was Jesus is so incredible, he could not have been human. He was superman. He was superhuman. And they argue that the way he lived his life was because he retained every single divine attribute, even at the expense of his human nature. Now, the passage that was read earlier, Philippians chapter 2, tells us Jesus emptied himself of attributes and characteristics of God that would have disqualified him from embracing full and authentic humanity. He relinquished what is known as the incommunicable attributes of God. Things like immortality. Jesus could not have died on the cross if he had not relinquished (laughs) immortality. He had to. Jesus relinquished omnipotence. Well, he'd never have been hungry. He would have never needed anything. Wouldn't have needed to sleep. He relinquished omniscience. He certainly relinquished omnipresence. And at times when he seemed to know more, for example, when Nathaniel was sitting under the tree and he says, I saw you under the tree. That was, that was a word of knowledge by the power of the Spirit. That's the important thing to see. Had he retained these attributes, Jesus would not have been human. He had to empty himself of the divine capacities, not the identity, but the divine abilities that would have disqualified him from being authentically and fully human. And so we read in Hebrews 2 verse 17, for this reason, and the reason is that Jesus has come to break the power of the enemy and reconcile us to God. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Make no mistake, Jesus is fully, completely, and always has been God in his identity. He's the only man who's ever lived whose identity is God. You've got to get that. His identity became veiled because he made an active choice to surrender those attributes by an act of his will. I am convinced he could have picked them up at any moment. He warned the chief priest, listen, I could call a legion of angels and sort you oaks out right now. The enemy's temptations towards Jesus were prodded and goaded by a refrain. Anyone know it? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Turn these stones into bread. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. If you are the Son of God, he was constantly wanting Jesus to set aside the humility of his humanity, which was a real temptation, and go, you little snot picker, boom, and smoke him in his divine nature. The victory of God, it's going to come later in the series. God is not threatened by the devil one little bit. 
He could blow him into oblivion. The victory of God in Jesus is that a human being overcame the enemy and set us free from him. That's Hebrews 2. Human beings do not need to live, according to Jesus, human beings do not need to live under the power of the evil one who kept them enslaved by their fear of death. And so Jesus, in his humanity, sets us free. And Peter declares this in his preaching, Acts 10, verse 37, 38, to Cornelius. You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism. Listen to this. After the baptism, John preached. What happened to Jesus at the baptism that John preached? Well, he tells us how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Notice a man with a street address. With the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good, healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus says, it's the Father living in me. That's how this stuff is happening. And that's why if you believe in him and you are in me and I am in you, you will do the stuff I've been doing. Do what Jesus did. Sadly, a modified asceticism has crept into the church. You know, this teaching Jesus is Savior, but not realistic example. And the end result is that little of what Jesus modeled, whether injustice or power or community or discipleship or whatever it is, becomes part of our expectation of one another. We kind of think, okay, God has sent a Savior, and we've got to work out what this looks like in our context. And again, I can tell you, there's some very academic papers that tell you that it's really up to us now to work out what Christianity should look like in our day. Just go on the internet, you'll find it very quickly. Christianity should look like in our day what it looked like in Jesus' life. Boom. You've got, to, you, you've got to go a long way. Now, I'm not saying... That Jesus there, you know, that we develop some kind of anachronistic phobia of technology or whatever. Of course, those things become part of the fabric. What we want to look at in this course is the key categories of life that Jesus expected to reproduce himself in us. But you know, if, if we start treating Jesus as a savior instead of an example... Little of what we find in the Gospels has any relevance to us except that your preacher every now and then will tell you, well, you ought to believe it because if you don't believe it, you can't be a Christian. No, no, no. You ought to do it if you believe it is what Jesus has said in our reading. So the funny thing is we've started treating Jesus a bit like pick and choose. We know that some of the things he said, um, I suppose we really ought to do them Sorry, Nick, I found one with your name on there, Bruce. Um, the restaurant is called Nick's. Um, and, uh, and so we treat it a bit like an a la carte menu. You know, it's very seldom you walk into a restaurant with a big a la carte menu and you just, you know, eat your way through the whole menu. It could be quite a painful experience, let alone the next day. But, you know, it's like, the menu that Jesus offers us, we come and we go, oh, I, I really like this menu. Look, it's even got a cute backstory called the Old Testament. Don't you like it when you go to the restaurant and you're waiting for your food and you don't have to play I Spy because you can actually just read, you know, a whole lot of rubbish they've invented about the restaurant and 
Normally it's complete fiction. But you know what? With Jesus, there's a nice backstory. And if it's also fiction, who, you know, as long as I get the little bits of Jesus that I, I would like. So, you know, the waiter comes along, an angel or, you know, Gabriel or something like that. I, I'll have the love pasta from Jesus, sprinkled with a dash of kindness and some social justice. Oh, no, no, no. I'll have the miracles from the seafood section. And I want deliverance for starters, thank you. And my dessert will be prophecy. I'll start with some prayer, followed by the main course of Scripture fillet steak, and bring it rare. No, actually, just tell the chef to heat my plate and just put it on the plate. I'll cook it myself. I'll have the new community with lots of cheese. I want the hot chili mission fajitas. With evangelism to go. Oh, and tell the waiter not to put any persecution on my plate. Do we get to pick and choose between love and miracles, mercy and community and justice and joy? Why should we? Listen, Jesus is not a menu. Explore. Jesus is a banquet. And every platter that he has laid on the table for you is a platter. Between his two burials. Burial number one, his baptism. Burial number two, Joseph's tomb. Everything between those two burials, God wants to reproduce in your life. Here's the difference. You're not going to walk around and say, I am the way. You're going to walk around and say, he is the way. You're not going to say, in my name. You're going to say, in his name. Ask in my name, he says. And so we ask in his name. Jesus is not a menu. He's a banquet. And every single platter groaning on the table is yours to eat, enjoy, live out, explore, you know, Hebrews chapter 12 takes us to the next point. Jesus lived and pioneered faith. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Notice, this is the correct translation. There is no, anyone, everyone know that Jesus called the author and perfecter of our faith? It's not in the text. It's not in the text. Jesus perfected faith himself. People wrote the owl because they were offended by the thought that Jesus had to live by faith. And so they changed the Bible. It's not a good idea. You're going to end up in serious trouble when you start changing the Bible because you don't understand it or because it seems to freak your categories. Of course, Jesus is unique. The Bible's got more than enough to say it. But he hasn't authored and perfected your faith. Of course, he has. Nearly as much as Jesus has shown us what living by faith really looks like. Interesting, this comes after Hebrews chapter 11, in which we read about all these amazing heroes of faith, and yet Jesus, who comes after them, is called the pioneer. <laughs> He's like the beginning of this thing. It's, obviously, I'll let you think about that. 
So in John 14, verse 1 again, he starts off by saying, believe in God. Believe in me. If you trust in me, you will trust the one I trust. Jesus sees no contradiction between fully trusting him and fully trusting his Father. Why? Because if you trust in Jesus, you'll trust the one he trusts. It's nuts to say, I will trust Jesus to be my Savior, I just won't trust the one he trusts. You don't trust Jesus if you won't follow his advice. (laughs) You don't trust Jesus if you don't take the risks he took. You know, if you're going to walk across a bridge and you've got a guide who's ahead of you and he walks across the bridge, or if you're going to swim in there, Zambezi, and you're going to go right to the edge of a 90-meter waterfall called the Victoria Falls, and, 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 and you know that the hippos and crocodiles in the same stretch of water... You don't easily go there without a guide. I would not advise it. But if you do happen to go there, it's no good saying, I trust my guide. You know, he's an amazing guy, but I simply am not going to do what he's showing me to do. It's crazy. Jesus is showing us how to live a life that is full of the Father's love, full of the Spirit's power, and I've got to trust him to start doing the stuff. I'm going to jump a few points. Jesus found joy in trusting the Father in everything. I mean, he really did. And so the challenge is rather obvious. Believe and do. That's what the main verse in our reading. Believe and do. And do. Jesus made it very clear he does nothing by himself. John 5 verse 19. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. And so Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And as long as we mess up these categories and we make unique what Jesus intended to be transferable, or we make transferable... What Jesus intended to be unique will never unlock the life of Jesus. I know it's been quite a sort of like you know, panicky session on the Trinity. You're all wondering if I'll get you know, hauled before the elders. I spend time with the elders. The elders spend time on this, looking at these very readings and going, can we, what does this look like? How does this unpack? And, and we didn't just say yes to it. We interrogated it. We debated it. We engaged it. I could tell you some of the nuances of that debate, but there isn't time. But we are absolutely convinced and stand united in this that Jesus is the model of authentic discipleship. And that the life he lived, the Father fully intends to make transferable to you. Believe and do. Believe and do. Tell you the truth. Anyone believes in me. It's crazy to say, I believe in Jesus. I just won't do a thing he did. (laughs) Believe and do. Believe and do. 